good day. Good to have everybody here who's here listening to this. This is our second week of our study in Psalms, and I'm just so thrilled to be able to do this. I hope you're as blessed as I've been getting ready. And uh, we're going to do Psalm 1 and 2 today, so let's just pray. Father, we just thank you for this opportunity to meet. We thank you for the technology that's allowing this. We just pray your blessing as together we go through these two psalms. And we just thank you, Lord, for your word, for all that you are to us. Be with us now in Jesus' name. Amen. At one point in my life, one of the workers I worked alongside, when she would tell you something, after she finished her conversation, she'd say, do you get the picture? Or do you get my drift? Do you get my drift? And she said it often as a way to make sure we knew what she was saying. Well, today as we start into the book of Psalms, we're going to see how the editor or editors, when they were putting together this collection of Psalms, wanted us to get the picture, to get the drift, the picture of what would be the theme of the book. So it was decided that the two Psalms which would begin the book would be the two poetic pillars that escort the reader into the temple of the book of Psalms. Whoever this was must have loved the law or the Torah of God. The Torah, according to O. Palmer Robertson, could also include history, prophecy, poetry, and wisdom, and of course the laws of Moses. The editor, whoever he was, might have been taken into exile or have been born during the exile. And into his hands had come these collections of psalms which would be used in the ordering of the services for seeking God's face in worship. There was a particular reason for these two being placed at the beginning of the Psalter. These two psalms show what God would have us know about who he is and how his word is to be daily incorporated into our life, and most importantly, how he has sovereignly established his son as king. They encourage us to realize that the psalms that follow our divine guidance as to how to live and to meditate deeply on the message that God is communicating, a very clear message, that depending on how one responds to God's word and to his son, who is a revelation of himself, will determine one's ultimate destiny. So now we're going to read both Psalms together. We'll read them right, one right after each other. And so read along with me, please. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And then Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage, and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. 
Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the degree of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I'll make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. We're going to look at Psalm 1, verse 1. Blessed or happy, which is a positive word, and it's followed by a series of negative things that we're not to do. Not to walk in the counsel of the ungodly, not to stand in the way of sinners, nor to sit in the seat of the scoffers. These are negative examples of a lifestyle totally void of God and people who are opposed to God. It represents a lifestyle that's a progression to sin. We're being told here that there are two ways to live. Way back in the Garden of Eden, God gave Adam a negative to allow him the privilege of a decisive choice. We see here that the mind plays such an important part in these decisions. We're to be aware of seeking and accepting the influence of three categories of people, the wicked, sinners, and mockers. The law of the Lord stands opposed to the counsel of the wicked. And I'm quoting now from Derek Kidner, who says, Psalm 1 is content to develop this one theme, implying that whatever really shapes a man's thinking shapes his life. I'll say that again. Whatever really shapes a man's thinking shapes his life. This is conveniently illustrated also by Psalm 2 where the word for plot is the same as this word meditates in verse 2. There's a description that results that follows from the very different thoughts, what men plot and what they meditate on. As far as the relationships with unbelievers, we're to reach out to the world to associate with those we hope will see our walk as different from theirs and hopefully see our joy in the Lord and want to know more and come to faith. But the description here is of the lifestyle of the world around us. And we learned as we studied Romans what God thinks of that lifestyle. The world wants no part of walking with God. In fact, in Psalm 2, which we will look at next, we see the rulers take counsel against the Lord. So the psalmist is saying, and again, I like to say this by inspiration, because this is God speaking through the psalmist. If we're to have a relationship with God, it'll be if I listen to his word and do what he asks me to do. I'll find I have to turn away from those worldly relationships, from friends who are going the other way. I'll benefit as I spend time listening to those who are preaching and teaching the truth and with believers studying together the word of God. If I need advice, I'll go to those who, by their lifestyle and knowledge of the Word, can give me advice. And as I stay in the Word, it'll give me understanding as to the traps and the false ideals of this world. It'll also give me courage, and boy, don't we need that today. 
Verse 2 talks about what will give me delight, real happiness. If I delight in his word and meditate on his law, not a duty, but a delight, a change of heart, a change of loyalty. The Hebrew name for the law of God is Torah. It referred originally to the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis to Deuteronomy. When the Israelite exiles returned to Jerusalem, and you can meet, read more of that in the book of Ezra, but in chapter 7, verse 9 and 10, it says, On the first day of the fifth month he came to Jerusalem, for the good hand of his God was upon him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Psalm 1 is the first of several Torah psalms, psalms of instruction, placed strategically at the beginning of the book of Psalms. Other Torah psalms are 19, Psalm 19, and Psalm 119. And these psalms exhort the readers to pay close attention to God's commandments and to be faithful in their response to them. But God's word and instruction is not just the laws of Moses, it's God's word or instruction as a whole. Look at the later part, or the latter part of verse 2 of this psalm. It says, On his law he meditates day and night. Now does it actually mean sitting and poring over the word day and night? There might be times when you have time to do that, and certainly there needs to be daily time spent in God's word. But the implication here is that at daytime or nighttime, anytime, our hearts and minds are to be influenced in our living by the Word of God, that our behavior and attitudes and thoughts are to be seeking the will of God. Our life should be in harmony with what we believe is God's will, and we can only live that way by delighting in His Word and knowing what pleases Him and asking His Holy Spirit to help us. As you look at these first two verses, doesn't it kind of remind you of what happens to someone who becomes a believer? Kind of paints a picture of repentance and salvation. You come to see the way of the world. It's so messed up, so wrong. And then the word of God starts to sound like the truth. And it describes how sin has corrupted everything and, and that Jesus is the truth, the one that alone can bring happiness. And you find a thirst for all that you can read about how God planned all this. And and then there's a turning from that downward spiral of desperation to joy and fruitfulness as the delighted believer comes to the truth and loves to spend time listening to what God has to say through his word. Do you remember the first time you actually knew that this was God's truth, that Jesus was the Redeemer? And praise God for his Holy Spirit that convinced and confirmed your belief and my belief. And so we go on. Look at verse 3. He's like a tree. Here's a description of a tree. The tree is healthy, and the Bible is full of similes. This is one of them. We're compared to a healthy tree. At times, we're compared to other things in Scripture, but this is a healthy tree. When we turned to God, we were planted in healthy soil by streams of water. I first thought of the parable that Jesus told in Matthew 13 about the seed and how it fell on three kinds of soil. And the seed sown on good soil is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and produces a crop, a hundredfold, sixtyfold, or thirtyfold. Then the other thing that I thought of when I looked at the, his, the tree planted by streams of water, 
I thought about water and what water represents in Scripture. I thought about the encounter Jesus had with the Samaritan woman at the well. She came for water, but found something that only God could give her. And in the course of their conversation, Jesus spoke to her as she came to the well. And he said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And Jesus went on to say, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, we know that he was referring to the Spirit of God. And John, I think it's John chapter 7. You can read more of that. It's, it's described there. Well, the righteous person modeled in Psalm 1 is a person who longs for the Word of God, meditates on it, and learns from it. He's like a tree planted by the river, constantly drawing from the river the water and nourishment for his growth. That is, if he stays close to the river. I thought of the mournful psalm. We talked about it last week, where those exiles were sitting by the river of Babylon. That river gave them nothing but regret. By delighting in the law of God, that person will be able to stay away from the dangers of the ungodly person, mentioned already in verse 1. We'll see them for what they really are, and be wise in who they are making associations with. Verse 3 continues. There's a word there, prosper. Now, the word prosperous has led many a person into false teaching. We haven't got time to go into that. But the tree that is described here, how does it prosper? Do you see what it produces? Fruit. Its leaf does not wither. There's no mold, no insect disease. And so the comparison to us is that we should prosper. How? Not by that Lexus that we see, or some grand home or estate, but by bearing fruit. Bearing fruit is the mark of a God-planned life. And if you've become a believer in Yahweh, we're called to bear fruit. If you want a reminder of the kind of living, a fruitful life, a few weeks ago, seems like a long, long time ago, but... We study chapter 12 and 13 of, of Romans, and when you look in those chapters, there's all kinds of fruit to pick. Well, let's go on and finish up with this psalm. Verses 4 and 5. There's a woeful description of the person who is described as wicked. They've already been described in verse 1, but now here is the verdict on what they can expect. They are like the chaff the wind blows away. I asked my husband, who had worked at combining wheat out west, what was chaff? Well, it's the part of the wheat that, once the harvest has begun, is separated from the kernel, which is collected and kept, but the chaff is blown out the back of the thresher. The good kernel is kept, and the chaff is tossed away. Chaff is not even good enough to feed livestock. Totally useless. Now, that's a hard description, but it describes a useless life one that's given no thought to God, in fact has scoffed and continue even today to scoff. Where is the sign of his coming? They scoff. They scoffed at the time when Christ was being crucified. If you're the Son of God, come on down. Call on your Father to help you. Oh, they scoffed. Well, what is the result of these scoffers? Verse 5 describes the day of judgment when we'll all stand before the Lord. It's a good warning as we read what will happen to the wicked. 
they won't have a leg to stand on in the judgment. Now, they may have been able to stand in this world with their wealth and their social standing and the deeds they accomplished. They may have had access into the right places on earth, but they'll have no access to the congregation of the righteous. In that day, says Isaiah 2 and 11, the haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And finally, the psalm concludes with the fact that the Lord knows the way of the righteous. He knows us. He guides us. He intervenes on our behalf. And so as we read these psalms, the focus is not merely, oh, this psalm describes me in a certain situation. I can identify with it. But instead, we should focus on the fact that the Lord God, creator of heaven and earth, is at the center of these psalms. As I read this psalm, does he know me? Are we in that relationship? Am I faithfully trusting him? Does he have my heart, even through these hard times? And now we're going to continue on into Psalm 2. I've put these two together this morning. I felt it was important before we got into the rest of the Psalms. And if you want to, at any time you can stop the, the, the podcast and just think back on these things and then continue on. But I'm going to continue on now with Psalm 2. This Psalm is the second of what one commentator calls the two poetic pillars that escort the reader into the temple of the book of Psalms. And as we looked at Psalm 1, we saw the contrast between the righteous and the wicked as they are judged on the basis of their response to God's revealed Torah, the law, the teaching, the instruction of God. Throughout the Psalms, this contrast of people, their path, their consequence will appear repeatedly. The second theme running through Psalm 2 and throughout the Psalms is the person of God's Messiah, his perpetual dynasty, and his permanent dwelling place. This psalm is a prophecy. It is a messianic psalm. It also could be called a royal psalm, but it's referring to the Lord Jesus. To quote O. Palmer Robertson, two kings and two kingdoms merge into each other through the repeat message of the psalms. David and his descendants will be established in a perpetual kingdom at a particular locale. Yahweh rules over heaven and earth from eternity and throughout all time. End quote. The Lord had made a covenant with David. You can read it in 2 Samuel 7, 4-17. The plan was in place, and yet we see the nations rage against the Lord and against his anointed. This psalm speaks through four voices. Verses 1 to 3 are the nations. Verses 4 to 6 is the Lord God. Verses 7 to 9 is Jesus speaking. And then 10 to 12 is a final warning. The psalmist heads right into it, doesn't he? Why? Why do the nations rage? Why do they plot? Why? Well, if you read of the love of God for them. Uh, For instance, in Hosea, chapter 11 and 4, where God says, I led them with cords of kindness and with the bands of love. God had led Israel out of bondage, and he had proved his love and mercy over and over. And yet there's this rebellion and plotting. In verse 2, it refers to the kings of the earth and the rulers. 
See them take counsel against who? Do you see that word, the anointed? In Greek, it's Christ. This really is portraying Herod and Pilate. This psalm is a prophecy. And right now, I would like you to turn to the book of Acts and chapter 4. I'll give you a minute to do that. Not a minute, I'll just give you a little while. Chapter 4. And uh, the verse that I'm thinking about is verse 25, but we're going to go right back to verse 23 and read to 28. Uh, If you've got Acts 4, if you've got your Bibles, uh, we'll start to read at verse 23. Story here is that Peter and John are hauled up before the council. And finally, and it says in the earlier part of the chapter, they're, they're put in jail. And then they're brought before the council, and they're warned to quit talking about this Jesus. And then they are released. And then in verse 23, the heading in my Bible is, The Believers Pray for Boldness. And so I'm just going to read it. You can follow along. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, They lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord. Do you know what they're really saying, don't you, when you say Sovereign Lord? He's in control of everything. He's sovereign. In control. So they pray, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. And here they're quoting Psalm 2. Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord Lord, and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. This is really interesting because we see here Peter and John go back and pray and they quote Psalm 2, which tells us that Psalm 2 was written indeed by David, even though there's no subscription as you look in your book. At Psalm 2, it won't tell you at the top who wrote it, but we know because Peter and John are praying and quoting, and they quote precisely what Herod and Pilate did, didn't they? But they affirm that this was God's plan. Chapter 4, verse 28. They did whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God had plan this. Herod and Pilate plotted. They destroyed Christ on the cross, or so they thought. But God took what they did to bring about our salvation. Notice also in verse 25, which is another um, statement about the scripture being inspired. Who did David, uh, who out of his mouth, 
who spoke really. It was David's words, but he was led by the Holy Spirit. It says here, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. (laughs) Kind of interesting when you look at that. And so Psalm 2 is definitely uh, written by David under inspiration. So now let's go back to Psalm 2. I'll have to look for it because I just closed my Bible. Should have had a marker. Okay, we're getting there. Psalm 2. Let's go back. So we see here, according to the prayers of Peter and John, their, their conspiring is futile. We can see this intense struggle between the righteous and the wicked. We'll see that right through the first chapter, or the first books of, of, um, of Psalms, the first collection. Uh, there's just an intense struggle. But we see the Lord has already got a plan. He's appointed the one who will be king. He says it's a done deal. I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Jesus is going to come, and he will be victorious. But now, in verse 7, the voice changes. And it's the Lord himself, the Lord Jesus. And he talks about what the Lord said to him. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask for, of me, and I'll make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. So as we look at that, we see that it's God's voice. We saw it when Jesus was baptized. God's voice affirmed it. He said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And he said it again on the Mount of Transfiguration. The voice was heard again. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Certainly God had set his king on his holy hill, hadn't he? He'd set his king on the holy hill of transfiguration, where for that few moments, Jesus, as it were, unzipped his fleshly body and let them see his glory. God had set his king on his holy hill of Calvary because that was how we would obtain salvation, by his dying for us. Well, we look at verse 8. And we see here the nations are Jesus' heritage as he gave his disciples and us a mandate. In Matthew 28, 18 to 20, Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And so we follow right through now to those last verses, 10, 11, and 12. It's a warning, a summons to submit, to pay homage, sincere homage. That term, kiss the son lest he be angry. They're not describing some temper tantrum. Remember when Jesus went into the temple and saw the money changers? Do you remember his words? He entered the temple courts and began to drive out those who were selling there. And he declared to them, It is written, My house will be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. I don't think he went in there and said that in a a soft way. I think it, it broke his heart. 
zeal for God's house had consumed him. How are we when we see things that are not right? There are things we can't change. We look at our society today and we, our hearts break as we see this world shaking its fist at the Creator. Our hearts break when we hear his name used, when he's called a man upstairs, and, and all these other things that are so blasphemous, and it breaks our heart. We can pray. We can pray. We're going to be doing that tonight as we gather together and, and listen to the prayer time at 7 o'clock. We can pray. Well, we've seen these warnings. This warning is here. And it's a serious warning. But the, the very end of the psalm is what really strikes me. Because through all this, that the Lord is going to, to judge, <clears throat> and through all the, the warnings he gives, this little sentence is tacked on as a reminder that it's never too late to turn to him. It's never too late to call on him. It says, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Blessed and happy are those who flee from his anger. You know, we often do disobedient things, don't we? We stray, we act in sinful ways. And sometimes we come back, and, and not sometimes, all time. We should, really, if you keep close to short accounts with the Lord. But sometimes we come back and we go, Lord, I keep doing this. Forgive me. And we wonder, why doesn't he consume us? Why, does he, why is he so patient? Well, it's because of his great mercy. For the, the world doesn't know of that mercy. They really don't. But we have such a responsibility to live out the truth of that gospel as people who have fled to him for safety. How grateful we need to be for his grace and his mercy, which is so undeserved. As I was looking at this commentary that we have by Gerald Wilson, he summed up these last verses. He says, whenever we read this psalm, we must be careful not to reduce it to a, a mere messianic prediction of the ultimate submission of the unbelieving nations to the authority of God's rule and kingdom. It is that, but it remains much more than that. It's also not just a threat of judgment to scare our unbelieving friends into the kingdom of God. Heaven forbid that we would try to do it. Wilson goes on to say, although it should encourage us to witness to them out of the boundless love poured out in Christ Jesus for them, it should remain for us who name the name of Jesus a powerful caution to lay down daily our own banners of personal freedom and self-satisfaction in order to kiss the sun. End quote. And so as we read these two psalms, as we see what God has done for us, we, we need to be so grateful. We're not our own. We've been bought with such a great price. And so as we study through the next few psalms, let us ask God to show us what this king is, this king is that we serve. Help us to be in prayer that daily he help us to draw closer to him, to show us the way to walk. And above all, let's pray for each other. Let's just seek him each day and draw closer in his word. Thank you.